Uh, let's bow our heads before we come to God's Word. Father God, I thank you that, uh, that you are an awesome God that we serve, Lord. I thank you that you're, uh, you're not made of wood or stone or gold or silver, Father, fashioned by hands, but you are alive and well, Lord. You are living, you are active. Father, I thank you that you reveal yourself perfectly through your Son and through your Word, Lord, that it's living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, Father. And this morning, I pray that you would pierce our hearts uh, with what you want us to hear this morning, God. I pray that you would uh, bring forth um, your words and uh, soften our hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning. I thank you for your great love for us, Lord. I thank you for your, uh, for your gift of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, hey, um, I've been, when I've been teaching, I've been working through the book of 1 John. So today we are going to be in the first half of 1 John chapter 3. Um, so far in the book of 1 John, there's been a couple really distinct things that have come out. Uh, as you cruise through the book of 1 John, it's, it tends to be kind of hard-hitting. He gives these wonderful terms of endearment, and then he's, he hits us with a test, hits us with strong truths. It's not necessarily a super comfortable piece of scripture at all times. Not that all, you know, all scriptures God breathed, and sometimes it does do the job of correcting and rebuking us, does it not? As it comforts and trains us and teaches us in all things. So 1 John is no different than that. There's been the theme so far, three distinct themes. There's been our, our doctrine. Who is Jesus? What have we done with Jesus? It's been our, our sin issues in our life, our morals where we're at in regards to sin, and it's been talking about love, our love for our fellow brothers and our love for God. So it's going to carry on in that theme as we can expect through the rest of the book. And here we are this morning, and you know, there's some great comfort in this passage we're going to look at this morning, and there's some, some, some stuff that smacks us. We're going, to, we're going to take a little bit of a running jump. We're going to start the last couple of verses of chapter 2 because it's kind of the paragraph. Uh, let's just read through the passage. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, sorry, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself and is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him 
and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wow. You know, I'm reminded right off the bat, uh, I was just thinking of the old adage, you know, the, the no God, the no peace, no God, no peace thing? You know, no God as an N-O God, no peace. No God as in the root word of knowledge, no peace. I, I just love that thought. When I come, when I, I, I read this tough stuff, I'm reminded that when I know God, I know his peace. He starts off in chapter 3 in verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You know, I I must admit, I like the King James here because I think we all know it as the King James. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be called the sons of God. There's something, I, I gotta admit, sometimes I like the King James, that language, to behold. Our ESV or other translations, they say, to see what kind of love. You know, uh, it's the idea of to see with one's eyes, to see with the mind, to perceive, to become acquainted or to experience, to take hold. Behold, actually, the old English word is two words that comes together. It means thoroughly to hold to or thoroughly to hold in the old English. When I think of behold, I start thinking about clinging to, clinging to the love that the Father has given unto us. Not let go investigate it. I think, well, what is the love of the Father? We talk about love. We throw the word love around. We've mentioned this in the, earlier in this, in this book. We, th- we throw love around really easily in our society, don't we? You know, in Scripture, there's four distinct words that are used for love. There's the, there's the eros, which is more the, uh, the sensual, uh, erotic. It's the passionate. It's the... Um, uh, I had the word written on my other set of notes before I reprinted it. I told Murray he was going to have to prompt me with words this morning. But um, it, it's, it's that irra- irrational. It's the irrational kind of love. You know, that love at first sight. It's the just go for it. There's the storgy. It's more of the family type of love. It's that idea of between parents and children and, and siblings. And it's that tight family love that we, we know there's the phileo, phileo, it's was that brotherly affection, the deep affection that we know in friendships and as we know with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's agape. Agape is that unchanging, no conditions, not dependent on me, not dependent on reciprocity, agape love. That's the word that the Apostle John uses here, behold what manner of agape the Father has given unto us. When I think of the characteristics of God's love, God's agape love, I just think of consistency, unchanging. I think of the incredible promise that is bestowed on you and I that we don't deserve to be loved the way that God loves us. I certainly don't. In fact, we know from Scripture that God loved us before we loved Him. We know from Scripture that God wishes that none be lost and all come to repentance. It's sacrificial. 
and it's accessed through faith alone in Jesus Christ. In John chapter, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Access through Jesus Christ. It's love for the undeserved. Our famous passage, John 3, 16 through 20, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then it talks about the purpose for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has, believed, he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. It's interesting. The love of God, it, it encompasses all mankind. It's access through Jesus Christ. The only way that we don't get it is when we love our darkness and we love the deeds as mankind and we don't turn in repentance to Jesus Christ. It's the only time we don't really get to experience that. The incredible love of God, when I think of a father's love as mentioned here, I first think a little bit of, since I've become a dad, I think of that when my daughter was born, I experienced a type of love I've never experienced before. I've experienced something that's closest to agape that I think I'll probably fully ever grasp. That little girl, you know, some days I say it's by the grace of God that she gives hugs and smiles and she's still alive. But the reality is, is that little girl, I love her with every part of my being. And if she turns her back on me one day, I might be disappointed, I might be sad, and I might be hurt, but I'm still going to love that little girl. That precious little gift. And I'm sure any one of you who is a parent understands that. Think of the love of the father. It's like the love of a parent, that little newborn infant. What can they do on their own? They can't do anything. Left to their own vices, they perish. They need their parents to come and feed them and nourish them and clothe them and keep them warm and clean up their messes. Think of the throes of parenting. I mean, my daughter's only five, almost five, so I have no idea compared to those of you who have adult children and what you've gone through from five to 20. That window scares me. Um, <laughs> and it should. But, you know, I, I, I think of the snotty noses and the dirty bums. And, you know, I told my wife this morning to kick me out of bed when my alarm clock went off, but I didn't need that because I had a little girl that came to my room that said, Daddy, I peed. And you know what? We get out of bed and we clean the sheets and we clean them off and we tuck them back in. We love them. We take care of them. I read a post from a, a Facebook post uh, this week of someone that I know, that some of you know as well, that has two little kids, and one's in the midst of being potty trained, and one's crawling. Uh, one may have 
had an accident with number two as he was walking. And the little guy comes behind looking at the little things on the floor. You know what? That stuff that we go through parenting, it's taking care of, nourishing, and, and taking the good and the bad and those hugs and the crap, literally. The love of God is like the love of a parent. Unconditional. You know, I, I cannot help but think of the parable of the prodigal son as recorded in Luke chapter 15. We know the story well, right? What did the son do? I want my inheritance. I want to be free from your rules. I want to be free from your house. And what did he do? He went and he ran off and he squandered it on food, women, booze. He squandered it. His brother, when his, later on when the dad restores him, says, well, he spoiled the inheritance on prostitutes. That's what he says. The son squandered it. But you know what I love? Two things I love about the story of the prodigal son. One, the father, he saw his son coming in the distance. He was waiting, looking for his son to come back. He was watching for him. Like the love of our heavenly father, he is looking for us. He is knocking he is the initiator. We are the responder, not the other way around. The other thing I love is that somewhere along the line, that son recognized, one, his father's love, and two, his mistakes. He repented. He had a change of heart. He was in the mire and the muck. What was he doing? He was eating the slops. He was feeding the pigs. And he recognized that even his servants are better loved and cared for in his father's house. He turned, he changed his mind from squandering to wanting to return to his father's house, even if he couldn't get everything. And what happened when he showed up? The father restored him to sonship. Put a coat on his shoulders. Through a party, my son who was dead has returned. We know that heaven rejoices when one lost soul is brought to the Lord. I love that idea of God looking for us, and he is initiating, calling us back home. He's standing there, he's, he's not, he's not close the door and slam the door and put a big gate in front of the acreage, stay away, son. It's waiting and watching and seeing him in the distance. When I think of experiencing God's love in our lives, excuse me, my mind instantly flips to the famous Psalm, Psalm 23, it's that psalm that so many of us have probably found comfort through. The words of David, he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. David writing this was well acquainted with that as he was a shepherd we know that, that he understood what the shepherd did. He went and, and he corrected the sheep when they went, went astray. When they were wounded, he carried them on his shoulders. When the bear and the lion came, he protected them and fought them off. He knew what a shepherd is. Jesus Christ is described as a good shepherd. 
Our Father is a loving shepherd who cares for us, who lead us and guide us and protect us. What does he do? He takes us and makes me lie, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, when I think of the imagery of that, um, every other year our family has this gathering up near Hunter Mile House, and the road into the resort is, is what came to mind when I was thinking about this passage. We're driving this little gravel road, and this is kind of this bowl, and this beautiful green meadows, and there's this great little river that just kind of weaves through there with these beautiful trees along it. I think, wow, what a place of rest. He leads us to those places of rest, a place of protection from the sun, nourishment from the ground, water. He restores our soul. He restores the brokenhearted. He leads us down the paths of righteousness. He changes our heart. I, I can never forget Psalm 139, verse 5, which we probably almost all know, where he talks about where he hems us in. He goes before us, and he has our rear guard. He leads us, and he guides us for his name's sake. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If any of you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's the closest thing to hell on earth that you've been through? I don't know what it is. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've almost. Maybe you've been sick. Maybe you lost a parent. I don't know what it is. Maybe you're faced with sickness today. Maybe you're faced with destitute today. Maybe you're faced with bankruptcy today. I don't know what you're faced with. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, maybe I'm attacked, I have no need to fear. I will fear no evil. You know, as we've been going through First and Second Timothy, Matt has said many times that life with Christ is not a path around the world and life. It is strength to go through the world and life. It leads us so we have no fear of evil, for he is with us. Our rod and our staff, they comfort me. That idea, when I think of the rod and staff, you know, you think of that shepherd's hook catching that little guy who's running off. Also, it serves to beat the bear. Sometimes it's a tanning on the backside of the sheep. The rod and the staff to protect and correct. Just like the word of God is in our lives. As last week, Matt talked about uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, that all scriptures God breathed and used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word becomes a comfort in our lives. God provides comfort in our lives. He provides us with his spirit as a comforter and as a guide to convict us in regards to our sin and righteousness and judgment to come. He goes on to say, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You ever have those days in life where you look around and you say, How come the ungodly, how come the unrighteous, how come that horrible person 
seems to have everything going well for them and things aren't going well for me. I have those days, you look around, you think, it just isn't fair, Lord. I'm trying to honor you with my life and it seems like I'm spinning the wheels going nowhere and that guy's living for himself and things are going well. The reality is eternally, I like how the NET version says it, you prepare a feast before me in plain sight of my enemies. God, when we know Jesus Christ, God is providing us a meal, a perfect, awesome meal that those who don't know Jesus Christ have no access to. It's eternity with him. And all they can, will be able to do is see and wish that they had repented and followed the kindness of God that should lead to repentance. He says, he anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. Oil always being a picture in scripture of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Eternal life, abundant life for today and eternity. I just think of the grace and mercy, the goodness and mercy of God, receiving, the, not receiving the punishment I deserve, being mercy, and receiving favor I didn't reserve, deserve, being grace and goodness. I love the declaration that David finishes with, and it's a declaration that I want for my life, that I will, serve, I will dwell in the house of the Lord all, <clears throat> sorry, and all the days of my life I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The love of God. What an amazing, amazing thing. It's culminated in the idea that we become children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be children of God. And so we are. What a great assurance. I have been adopted by God the Father. I've been transferred from a state of limbo, from an orphanage, a place that I have no inheritance. My value and my possessions might be the shirt I have on my back that's worn out. And if I'm lucky, a soccer ball that someone dropped off. And I have been adopted by God the Father by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's perfect adoption. I've been brought into full inheritance by God Almighty. You know, this, it's, God is described as being as owning the cattle on a thousand hills in regards to his riches. Think of if you were to go stand on the Rocky Mountains and do a 360 and count the mountaintops. Would you see a thousand? I don't know. I think we would run out of sight line before we counted to a thousand. Cover those with herds of cattle. Even if you were to take cattle rancher terms of today, that person who owned that would be, so, would be like the wealthiest person in the world. It would overrule what technology can do. Can you imagine? Our God has created the world and therefore all is his. And we have been brought into full inheritance. Romans 8 15 through 17 says it like this, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery, the sin and the law, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We get to say, Daddy, because we've been adopted. He is our dad. 
Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's a promise we don't like. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In this world we'll have troubles, but fear not, I have overcome the world, is what Jesus told us. Not to expect ease. The psalmist knew that. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear not. In Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. One commentator made, a, made an interesting uh, little synopsis. He said, who calls us the children of God? First he referenced 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 6.18 said the Father, it says this, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The Son, in Hebrews 2.11, he, that being Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, being us, brethren. And the Spirit, Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I read, uh, I, I was looking at some stuff in Galatians uh, at the end of, last week or the beginning of this week and um, the commentator I was the commentary I was reading he made the reference uh, to God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and he said it this way that God the Father planned it for me God the Son purchased me God the Spirit personalizes it to me I thought wow been planned, I've been purchased, and it's personalized for me, for my sin, my problems, my personality, my issues. We have the right to be called children of God when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. What an assurance. If you can say, as it says in Romans 10, 9 through 11, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart that one believes and is justified with his heart and with his mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Assurance. First John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so you may know that you have eternal life. We can have assurance that we have access to that incredible love of the Father. You know, if I think of First John so far, there's been these tests, right? And one of them has been love. I believe I need to understand God's love for me before I can respond and show God's love to others. Understand his grace and his mercy. We had the conversation about peace on Wednesday morning, about peace coming from God and that we are to extend peace to others. I think grace works the same way. It's, all, it's almost all together. It's an amazing thing, amazing grace. And then John carries on and he said, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You know, we're not to be surprised if we don't quite fit into this world. You know, they missed, Jesus didn't fit into the world. 
The world missed him then and it misses, it misses him now. They were looking in the days of Jesus, they were looking for a political politician to save the day. Sound familiar? The religious elites, they called him a drunkard and a glutton. They tried to trap him. They denied his claims about who he was, that he was the father or that he was God. Actually, it was a very kind of antichrist type attitude like we talked about last time, denying Jesus Christ. So don't be surprised when we don't fit in this world. It says, in this world you'll have troubles. But fear not, our hope is in Jesus Christ, not in this world, not in economies, not in politicians. And he carries on in, um, it's only verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And thus, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So he, he hits verse two and he reaffirms that our assurance that we are adopted and are part of God's family, that we are his children. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. First off, he is going to appear again. Jesus is coming back for his bride. It's an exciting thing. You know, as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, looking for his return, expecting, expectantly has a purifying effect on our hearts and lives and as our, on our churches. Because I don't want to be backslidden when Jesus returns. I don't want to be ashamed when Jesus returns that I'm erring and falling into sin. I want to be serving him. I want to be following him. I don't want to be falling into sin and lawlessness. I heard one pastor, was, he was teaching on this pastor, he said, you know, you know, maybe theologically it doesn't quite work, but he said, you know what, I would like it to be that I enter into heaven and don't realize I'm there for a couple hours because I'm walking so closely with Jesus before I get there. I thought, wow, isn't that a great thought? I would love to know Jesus that well that when I get to heaven, it doesn't feel like that much has changed until all of a sudden I look around, hey, this is an earth. Hey, I got, maybe I got hair. I don't know. I want to know Jesus that way. I want to be so tight with him. And he says, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So what's Jesus going to be like when he returns? What's going to happen to our bodies? The first thing that comes to mind is our, our mortal flesh needs to be transformed into immortality. We all know the passage well in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, be, body must put on the imperishable and with this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We will, our bodies will be transformed 
They're going to be changed. They're going to be perfected. They're going to be designed for eternity. This tent can blow down pretty easy. We're pretty fallible, aren't we, in our flesh? God's building us an incredible mansion that can weather any earthquake and storm and no matter what. This little tent of mine gets blown down by a little breeze. The glory of Jesus is going to be revealed to us. I think of the idea of unveiled glory. It says that we're going to see him as he is. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about, and we will all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. I think of Moses. He came down off the mountain and he had been near God. He'd been in his presence and the glory of God reflected off his face. But what? He had to put a veil on so people didn't see the glory of God dissipating. We are going to behold the face of Jesus Christ. We don't need to be veiled for the glory to be dissipating because we will be glorified with him and we will see his face, see him face to face. Our sin nature, our battle with the sin in our lives will be gone. We won't be stumbling in those little shadows every once in a while anymore. We'll be walking our aim, our purpose in life to strictly be glorifying him. We will see clearly who Jesus is. You know, in the, in the biblical times, a mirror was not our nice sheet of glass. It was something that you got a dim reflection in. I'm a mechanic, so when I think of a dim reflection of what their mirrors must have looked like, I think of an aluminum wheel. You know, you can kind of see your reflection, but you can't really. And we're going to see perfectly clearly. I think of what some things that we get ideas, some glimmers about how Jesus is going to be is in Revelation chapter 1. It talks about some physical attributes. It talks about him being dressed in kingly robes. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, that being Jesus, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, pure, absolutely pure. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished with bronze strength, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters, and his right hand held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was, <clears throat> was like that of the sun shining in full strength. We're going to behold his glory. We're going to see him for who he is. We're going to see him as the risen reigning king, but he will still be bearing the wounds of my sin and your sin. Revelation 5, 6, describing Jesus, talks about the lamb before the throne that still had the wounds. It looked like he had been slain. You know, I don't think that I fully understand what Jesus has done for me. I don't know if we ever fully will till we go to be with him when we see him looking as a slain lamb. The best image I can think of is when I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It started there as the weight came on him and he sweat out blood. You know, Gethsemane means to be pressed or olive press. It's an, it's a, the garden is actually an olive grove. And then on the cross, you know, Romans knew how to torture people. No one knew how to 
how to torture someone more than the Romans. And crucifixion was the crux of that. It's like me standing on his shoulders as he tries to push himself up and or pull himself up on nails through his hands and feet to take a breath. And I don't think, I kind of know it in my head and I kind of know it in my heart, but I don't think I fully know it. I don't think I'll fully know it till I see him face to face. He's a ruling, reigning king still bearing the scars he paid for me. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and remember the penalty he has paid for us, be a purifying nature. I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to shrink back in shame. I want to be able to stand with confidence before my Lord. Maybe when I really see those wounds on his body, maybe I'll still be struggling with the reality of who I am. But I want to stand as confident as I can. I don't want to be found backsliding. It's 4 and 5. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. I think of practice of sinning. This is the idea. It's where have we set our mark? Where have we set our aim? Where have we set the course of our ship? Are we going for light or are we going for dark? That's the idea here. We know that we still struggle with sin. In chapter 1, John addressed that. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He says that if we say that we're without sin, we're liars. But it's the aim of our life. Is our aim to please our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? Or is my aim to serve my flesh? My attitude towards sin needs to be repentance, not just remorse. Remorse and confession is not repentance. Repentance is a change of way. When I think of sin and lawlessness, I think sinning equals lawlessness. Lawlessness equals lack of regard for the law. Lack of regard for the law is lack of regard for the lawmaker and judge. And therefore, my habit, my habitual intentional sins is a lack of regard for God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ, the penalty He's paid, as well as the Holy Spirit who is convicting my heart in regards to sin and righteousness. I want to make it my practice to walk in the light. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So he's building on the doctrine about Jesus Christ. He's, we start off in chapter 1 that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Chapter 2, we're reminded that Jesus is our advocate. Here we're reminded that Jesus was without sin and back in chapter 2, along with the advocate, we are reminded that he is our propitiation, the idea that he has paid our penalty. You know, only Jesus can take away sin because he was without sin. That's the idea here. If he had sinned, a death penalty would only be good enough for his sin, maybe. But because he had not sinned, his penalty that he paid can be applied to my sin and to your sin because he was perfect and sinless. It's super important that we keep our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done in the forefront of our lives. Commentator uh, Dave Guzik said, talked about the, the different senses of our sin. Jesus takes away our sin in the sense of taking away the penalty of our sin. This is immediately accomplished when, when it comes to faith in Jesus. 
We cannot take away the penalty of our own sin. It is impossible to cleanse ourselves in this way. We must receive the work of Jesus in taking away our sin. Secondly, Jesus takes away our sin in the sense of taking away the power of sin. This is a work that will be completed when we pass into eternity and are glorified with Jesus. We cannot take away the power of sin in our lives. This is his work, and we respond to that work. Someone who comes to Jesus does not have to first clean themselves up, but he must be willing to let Jesus do the work. Jesus takes away our sense in the way of taking away the presence of sin. This is a work, once again, that will be completed when we pass into eternity. But we cannot remove the presence of sin on our lives on our own. It's only something Jesus Christ can do through the power of his Holy Spirit. Then he goes on, chapter six, or verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I think of the idea of abiding. I use the analogy of, the, of a gondola the last couple times. And you know what? If we are abiding, that idea of clamping onto that cable, and Jesus being that strong cable, doing the work, taking us from our sin and our stuff, our depravity, taking us to sanctification, becoming more like Christ Jesus. If he's doing the work, and our job is to hang on to Jesus Christ, I can't tie the bottom of the gondola to the loading dock. It's disaster. And I can tell you that the cable's not the thing that's going to break. We cannot abide in Jesus Christ and be complacent in our sin in our lives. We need to listen to the prompting of his Holy Spirit that abides in us, that as he said in chapter 2, verse 20, that he anointed on our hearts, has been given to every believer. The scripture tells us that we have <clears throat> that we have been reborn. Our fleshly our flesh is to be crucify with Christ and we're to be raised with new life in Christ Jesus. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. He goes on, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. I just want to say this, beware of anyone who comes across as spiritual and especially hyper, well, that comes across as spiritual and there is no sign of righteousness in their lives. God convicts us through his spirit in regards to sin and righteousness, being right before God, living a right life. Remember that over, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, but I believe our, we, our, we act as well. Our speech and our actions needs to line up. Finishing up, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is evident who are the children of God and who they are children of devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's that practice, it's that aim. It's where are we setting our course. He's clear here that the devil's been sinning from the beginning. His, his sin was pride, right? He wanted to be like God. I know my sin is generally rooted in pride. Hasn't changed much, has it? 
my course set in my pride or is my course set in my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? Remember, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, destroy sin, in reality, destroy pride. Bring us into a humble place before our God. John's clear here that there should be evidence in our lives that we're believers. I think of it as supporting documentation. I've said it before that, you know, I submit my tax return online to the CRA. And sometimes they send me a letter back asking for supporting documentation. My righteousness, my good works, my life should be supporting documentation of what I claim. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Because we, are, we, we live in this world and we're not to be of the world. It's a challenge. Let's keep short accounts with our Lord, as it says in 1 John 1, 9, when we sin. Let's be sure that we've set our sights on Jesus Christ, not on something else. I want to be known as a Christ follower, as a lover of God. And I want it to be real. When I think of this little bit of 1 John chapter 3 together, the love of God, I was reminded of the old hymn, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his son. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. That's a great, great description of our God. The love of God is greater far than we could ever even imagine. The valley of the shadow of death. The second thing that comes to my mind is repent, repent, repent. Stay aimed at Jesus. Repent, repent, repent. Mary and Beth, you guys, I want to come up and close us in a song. Uh, Father, I, I thank you for your word, Lord. It's uh, not always perfectly comfortable, Lord. Sometimes you string cords in our hearts and our lives, God. And uh, we want our aim as believers to be on you. I pray that you would help us to understand your love for us, your goodness for us, your grace and mercy, God. I pray that you would help us to, uh, to live and act and walk as, uh, as you want us to, Lord. We thank you uh, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.